Hello and welcome. I'm Jesse Wiest and this is essentially part two of a three-part introduction to the Atlantic world. Um, and I'd like to apologize in advance. Uh, I'm, the basis of this episode uh, is from my senior thesis in college and so it's a little bit dry um, if you ask me. But uh, at any rate, I wanted to go ahead and put out as many episodes as possible to start with. And uh, also, I think it's still pretty interesting. I'm going to do my best. And it's about something, unlike last episode, uh, this one's about something that you probably don't know about. Um, Black Carib Resistance to British Imperialism, 1763 to 1797. Um, the Black Caribs uh, are Native Americans who, uh, in the 18th century, the Brit British referred to variously as Caribs, Cherubs, Caribs. Um, they called themselves the Kalinago, and uh, the original natives were called the Yellow or Red Caribs, as opposed to the Black Caribs, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, for purposes of clarity, I use both Caribs and Black Caribs uh, when referring to the St. Vincent population of Kalinago African mixed bloods. And I will use Kalinago to refer to the lighter skinned natives who lived on the southern part of St. Vincent. Um, at any rate, uh, not many people at all know about St. Vincent, but uh, when I first applied uh, to be a state park ranger, um, the park manager at the time I think his very first question to me after introducing himself was, uh, uh, was uh, so you did your uh, senior thesis on St. Vincent? And I replied, he did. And he said, you know, my wife is from St. Vincent. Um, and my response to that was uh, basically, well, I was pretty excited. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of people. Not many people know about St. Vincent to talk to. Um, and my eyes lit up, and I said, wow, so you know who Chateauier is? Um, needless to say, we, it was a pretty good interview for me. We had a really great uh, discussion, and uh, it contributed largely to my becoming a ranger, despite failing the uh, initial background check, because I failed to disclose that I had been arrested for driving uh, on a suspended license a few years before that. Um, at any rate, they uh, let it slide. <clears throat> With that said, I think we better start. Now, um, historians uh, have largely ignored uh, the impact of black Carib sovereignty on British uh, imperialism in the Caribbean island of St. Vincent. Uh, particularly during the turbulent second half of the 18th century. Um, instead, most histories of the Atlantic world focus on uh, similarities, differences, uh, you know, common themes between large regions such as the Caribbean and North America, or uh, between English, French, and Spanish conceptions of empire, for example. And all that's fine. Um, we're going to do a lot of that here. Uh, but because of that, most Atlantic world scholarship has simplified the diversity 
within the different islands of the Caribbean. Um, the island of St. Vincent was exceptional in that it housed a thriving Carib or Kalinagu culture that began as the result of a 17th century shipwreck when a number of Africans entered the Kalinagu population. Now, according to British planter and 18th century expert on St. Vincent, William Young, the Kalinagus enslaved these shipwrecked Africans. Uh, now, Young also formed a pivotal component of British planter society, engaging in hostilities with the Black Caribs. So he may have overstated the differences uh, politically between Caribs and Kalinagos. Um, now, intermarriage was common between the two groups, according to ethno-historian Edward Konzimayas. The, uh, in fact, the shipwrecked Africans settled on St. Vincent and, quote, thus regained their liberty where they formed a colony apart from the Indians with whose language and customs they adopted." Unquote. Now, no matter their origins, by the beginning of the 18th century, two self-identified indigenous nations made their homes on St. Vincent, the Kalinago and the Black Caribs. Now, faced with the adversity in the form of British colonial policy, the Black Caribs resisted ferociously and presented the British with the issue of their sovereignty through both diplomatic and violent means. Now, the British eventually defeated the Caribs, uh, exiling them from St. Vincent via a treaty. But in the 32 years between 1763 and 1797, Carib agency made an awesome impact on the greater Atlantic world. Vincentian Black Carib involvement involvement in the 18th century consumer revolution influenced British and French foreign relations. Their war for independence from British colonists played a prominent role in the sequence of events leading to the American Revolution. And the memory of the war remains seared into the minds of 19th century British abolitionists. Now, numerous historians have inaccurately assessed the impact of the Black Caribs. Um, According to Philip Curtin in Rise and Fall of the Plantation Complex, the relatively densely populated indigenous populations of the Caribbean were so decimated by disease and the Spanish Asiento that virtually all of the Indians of the tropical lowlands were dead except the Caribs. Kalinago had a fierce tradition of warfare. <clears throat> Their fighting propensities reduced the intensity of contact and gave them a chance to develop immunities to new diseases. And so they fared better against two and a half centuries of European imperialism than their neighbors. Now, <clears throat> Eric Williams gives the Kalinago slightly more attention than Curtin. Um, he notes that the Kalinago asserted their sovereignty beyond Iberian domination of the Atlantic. Britain and France agreed in 1660 that Dominica and St. Vincent belonged to the Carib, despite an ever-increasing European appetite for American sugar. St. Vincent Kalinagos were known to have captured and held slaves before 1649 and incorporated some of them into their population. After a shipwreck, variously stated as 1635 and 1675, hundreds of surviving slaves began intermarrying with the Kalinago population. By the early 18th century, the copper-skinned Kalinagos and black Caribs split into two separate entities with the Caribs settled in the heavily forested mountainous terrain at the north end of the island of St. Vincent, 
France continued to recognize Carib sovereignty throughout the 18th century. But in 1730, Britain began asserting that St. Vincent, St. Lucia, and Dominica fell under its sovereignty. At this point, according to Eric Williams, the Caribs exit as full partners in the historical record, a weakened people decimated and exterminated in the face of British and French imperial power. On St. Vincent, where although at a disadvantage when dealing with Europeans, the Black Caribs comprised a sovereign nation on the periphery of the plantation complex whose impact had far-reaching effects on Atlantic history well after their eventual removal by treaty with the British to a reservation off the coast of South America in 1797. Now, the historical record clearly shows that St. Vincent stands as an exception to the representation of the sugar-producing Caribbean islands during the 18th century. Um, Hilary Beckel's essay, Kalinago, or Carib Resistance to European Colonization of the Caribbean, traces Carib agency in the Caribbean during the first half of the 18th century. She also notes that the Caribs have received insufficient attention from scholars. Faced with the loss of their homeland and way of life for decades, the Caribs resisted ferociously and often successfully against British colonial interests in St. Vincent. As a result, Black Caribs influenced the application of empire by the British on St. Vincent in remarkable ways. For example, Philip Curtin's data in Atlantic Trade Slave, a census, indicate that the Caribs significantly impacted the growth of the plantation complex on St. Vincent. Uh, he has a table that uh, is called, quote, reported slave population of the smaller territories in the British West Indies. And uh, it indicates that St. Vincent's slave population nearly doubled in size between 1787 and 1834 from 11,900 to 22,300. In addition, the slave population on St. Vincent uh, previous to that experienced a very slow growth while the Caribs inhabited the island from six, from, excuse me, from 18, good, good, goodness gracious, from 1764 to 1787, there we go, the slave population on the island rose from only 7,400 to 11,900. In comparison, the size of Dominica uh, had uh, 15,000 slaves in 1787 and had over 20,000 slaves as early as 1805. And from 1766 to 1773, the slave population of Dominica rose from 8,500 to 18,800. 18th century British missionaries, planters, and politicians who wrote about St. Vincent and the Caribs either failed to grasp or refused to recognize the scope of Carib sovereignty. And their, so Carib impact was ignored and minimized by British historians from the 19th century onward who examined St. Vincent. Now, biased European accounts of the Caribbean have heavily contributed to the myth of the disappearing Indian. Um, now, as a result, indigenous contributions to the Atlantic world have been uh, often or too often dismissed or ignored uh, by a lot of present-day historians. Um, boy, I, I sure was a mean, mean critic when I was uh, in college, I guess. 
I think I'd be a little kinder nowadays. Um, you know, some of the problem of when you, you know, a lot of times when you when you learn something new, you're like, gosh, I've never learned that before. You know, it's not that the historians are purposefully trying to do a bad job at covering the past. It's just that history consists of an awful lot. You have to make choices about what you're going to write about. And uh, at any rate, uh, well, more for me with the history of St. Vincent. Uh, now, in contrast to uh, the dismissive attitude um, that a lot of that history uh, has had towards St. Vincent, uh, toward, uh, as far, especially as far as their contributions to the greater Atlantic world, um, in contrast to this, the Carib War was all-encompassing for the British planters who lived on St. Vincent. Um, historian Robert Fagel argues that for British colonial authorities, the clash between the ambitions of sugar planters, whom they were bound to favor, and the continued existence of the black Caribs on the land they coveted was a nuisance. Now, Fagel bases his argument on the obvious fact that the size of the British Empire made the fate of the St. Vincent War pretty insignificant to the British government. Now, his assertion may be correct, for British officials residing in England. But I think his argument ignores the fact that some colonial officials, like Sir William Young, were also St. Vincent planters. For men like Young and other British subjects living on St. Vincent during the second half of the 18th century, the Carib War was a terrifying and intense guerrilla conflict with immense consequences. Fable's argument does not apply to British officials increasingly concerned about abolition and slavery in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War either. Although seen as inconsequential to some uh, during the conflict, the Caribbean impact on the Atlantic was significant. The British were in a superior position to the Caribs, and thus British influence on the natives of St. Vincent was tremendous. But British military might was not so hegemonic as to prevent a similar cultural exchange from affecting British imperial society as well. By vigorously asserting their sovereignty, the Black Caribs influenced not only the British colonial efforts on St. Vincent, but also British policy back home in England and across the British Atlantic. Um, now from here on, I guess I've got to prove all of that. Um, well, uh, now, for those of you interested, I don't imagine that there are many, but uh, if, if anybody interested is interested in historiography, in the art of, of telling history, um, this podcast is a, a pretty good example of that. Now, I was not a great writer now, and I certainly wasn't uh, a great writer, uh, you know, while I was still at college, um, but... Anytime you're writing history, uh, you've got to start with an argument. Um, and, and, and my argument, uh, obviously, is that the uh, Black Carib War and the, the effects of that influence of the Black Caribs um, deserves a greater place in, in the history of the Atlantic world. At any rate, um, on to the show. A variety of factors contributed to the Caribs' ability to resist British col colonialism, 
not the least of which was the 17th century infusion of Africans into Kalinago society on the island. Now, according to British uh, planter William Young, and actually, I want to stop here, and let me, let me just mention who William Young is. I probably should have done this at the beginning, I apologize. William Young uh, was a member of Parliament who inherited five West Indies plantations. Eventually, he will, uh, later in this, he will become the colonial governor of Tobago. And he was born in 1749, he will die in 1815. Uh, he and his father before him wrote extensively about colonial life in the Caribbean, uh, and on St. Vincent's slave trade in the Caribs. Um, he published his own and his father's writings on the 1760s. Uh, he was an expert uh, on the subject of St. Vincent, but he often also, I would say, uses propaganda sometimes in his writing, to further his goal of Carib removal. Um, nevertheless, we're pretty reliant on him to talk about this. Uh, at any rate, uh, now, according to Young, a slave ship bound for Barbados wrecked on the small island of Bequia, two leagues from St. Vincent, around the year 1675. The Kalinagos were an experienced maritime people, and quickly discovered the survivors of the wreck. As Bequia had too little water for the surviving Africans, the Kalinagos had little difficulty transporting them across the channel to St. Vincent's, where they made them slaves and set them to work. Now, if Young's claim is to be believed, the Africans probably benefited from the different relationship between slave and master in Native American society. The survivors were integrated far more fully into their new society than in the chattel slavery system, and the shipwrecked Africans became a part of Kalinago society. Still, these new members put an intense strain on the, uh, the Kalinagos, and eventually, the indigenous society on St. Vincent split into separate tribes. The Black Caribs left, and, accompanied by their wives and children, lived in the woods and rocks which cover the high mountains to the northeast of St. Vincent's. British sources note that the Black Caribs increased throughout the 18th century, while the Red Carib population decreased. Although British sources may have overemphasized the separation between the two groups, African genetics gave the Black Caribs greater resistance to European diseases such as smallpox uh, than the Kalinagos, and greater resistance to African diseases such as malaria than the Europeans. And as a result, the Caribs flourished on the north end of St. Vincent until the tremendous strain of three decades of war with the British finally forced their capitulation. Now, besides African genetics, uh, another important factor that contributed to the Black Caribs' ability to defy the British colonists on St. Vincent was their connection to Kalinago culture. By 1763, the Kalinagos had hundreds of years of experience in warfare that predated European imperialism. Uh, the Kalinagos had began to in migrate into the southern Caribbean sometime around uh, the 11th century. Uh, now, these islands were already inhabited by Siboney and Arawak peoples, um, and in part by warfare, the Kalinago were replacing them. Now, by the time the Spanish reached the Americas, the Kalinago had already established dominance in southern islands and were expanding into the Lesser Antilles. Early Spanish accounts note that the Kalinago were described as more prepared for aggression 
to the other peoples in the Caribbean. Kalinago people viewed the islands they lived on, uh, despite their relative newcomer sta sta uh, status, as part of their natural ancestral survival environment. And as such, they vigorously defended their homes in the face of European colonialism. You know, by the 18th century, the Black Caribs, who were assimilated into Kalinago culture by name and manners, according to William Young, and in fact, the Caribs, quote, not only assumed the national appellation of the Kalinaga, but individually, their Indian names, and they adopted many of their customs. Kalinago people saw themselves as a sovereign nation, and the Caribs were no different in this regard. According to Young, again, quote, the Black Caribs formed a nation, and thus inherited the qualities, the rights, and the property of those whom he may pretend to supersede. Unquote. By the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1763, which ceded St. Vincent to Britain from France, the Caribs were well defended to prepare themselves against British colonists. Now, in contrast uh, to the malaria-resistant and prepared for aggression Carib uh, natives of St. Vincent, 19th century data on disease and mortality among European soldiers was almost always higher uh, than those of, uh, for, of those soldiers who uh, served in Europe. In the West Indies, disease rates for European soldiers were among the highest in the world. But if deaths from malaria and yellow fever are set aside, European troops were actually healthier than those who stayed in Britain. The geography of St. Vincent presents another factor that contributed to the success of the Caribs in defying the British. To William Young, the people of St. Vincent inhabited by the, the part, excuse me, of St. Vincent inhabited by the Caribs was an almost inaccessible fortress. Many British accounts focus on the inhospitality of St. Vincent's terrain. Perhaps none are so informative as that of James Anderson. He explored the Carib territory shortly after their removal and found that St. Vincent's rivers and mountains render the island exceedingly difficult to explore. Anderson journeyed to Mount Garib, a sacred site that figured heavily into the traditions of the oldest inhabitants of the island, and a place where the Caribs would retreat whenever a British offensive threatened their destruction. Upon setting upon, uh, upon, setting upon the small plantation of a French colonist, Anderson pondered, what could induce a stout, healthy man in the prime of his life to take up residence among the rocks and precipices? Anderson discovered, as did British soldiers in the years before his expedition, that the difficulty of going through the woods in the West Indies, where there are no roads or paths, was far beyond anything any European can conceive. So these three factors, geography, genetics, and culture, have greatly contributed to the Carib decision to use warfare to defy the British imperial goals, and they combined, they were enough to at times overcome British military superiority. Now these factors provided ample motivation for the Caribs to defend their sovereign territory, and they gave them the tools with which to defend themselves against a superior military force. Well, maybe not all the tools. There was one more important weapon in the Carib arsenal, and that was their ability to engage in overseas diplomacy and trade. 
uh, especially with French merchants on other Caribbean islands. Now, not being dependent on British trade goods gave the Caribs uh, leverage in dealing with the British. This was especially true whenever conflict between Britain and France escalated, and especially uh, as it did during the American and French revolutions. Now, but because of British maritime technological superiority, Carib dependence on overseas trade was dangerous. Now, this danger was compounded by their cultural dependence on fishing as a food source. Now, the British became aware of this by the 1770s, and they realized that if they stationed enough warships in the waters surrounding St. Vincent, that they could stop Carib canoes and put formidable economic pressure on Carib society. Now, it was this prolonged strategy, and coupled with the death in 1795 of the charismatic wartime leader, uh, Chief Chateauier, that led to the eventual surrender of the Caribs. Now, in addition to providing an advantage when facing the British, uh, the culture, genetics, and geography made black Carib society fundamentally different than the society of other maroon settlements in the Americas. Um, see, unlike the maroon communities of Jamaica or Suriname, the Caribs differed in being able to act as a united group in their guerrilla strategies against the colonists. As a further differentiation, unlike most maroon communities who relied uh, on theft from plantations for guns and ammunition, the Vicentian black Caribs purchased arms from Martinique and St. Lucia in large quantities. Thus, the black Caribs were more fully involved in the consumer revolution of the 18th century, and they used this involvement to play British and French colonists off each other. Uh, now, the same factors that contributed to the success of Carib resistance to the British after the Seven Years' War made British imperialism nearly impossible on the side of St. Vincent owned by the Black Caribs in the decades before the defeat of France in 1763. The Caribs were free in British eyes until 1722, when George I's new grant of the island of St. Vincent gave British citizens the opportunity to invest in a colonial venture. But when an English exploratory party attempted the next year to explore the island in a, quote, just and peaceable manner, unquote, they were repulsed. Despite King George's proclamation, English colonists were unable to assert any right of sovereignty further than wooding and watering during the first half of the century. And in 1748, St. Vincent was declared by British and France to be a neutral island. The Caribs were vigorous in their defense of the island. According to Young, the jealousy of the black Caribs would not permit Europeans to fix near their country. Thus, the English made no further attempt at actual settlements until after the Peace of Paris in 1763. Now, European colonialization efforts fared better on the southern half of the island. The Kalinago population on the south end of St. Vincent suffered declines during the 18th century as a result of Old World diseases. French settlers were able to take advantage of the declining uh, Kalinago population, and they bought unused land from the Kalinago and settled on the southern end of the island. British sources also noticed the difference in the populations between the two groups, 
and subsequently exploited the Kawanagos reinstated. Young reported that George I sent Captain Brandway to explore the state of the country, and he was admitted to parley with both the groups of Red and Black Karens. Bandwith reported that the General of the Indians was surrounded by about a hundred armed men, whereas the Chief of the Negroes was supported by four hundred men-at-arms, and those nearest to his person had muskets and cutlasses. As a result, the Kalinago, unlike the Karens, were unable to keep British and French settlers from gradually building small communities on their side of the island. Now, these same colonists were aware that the Caribs would pose a difficult foe, but 18th century European attitudes about race made peace between the British and the Caribs just about impossible. In British eyes, stipulations within the Treaty of Paris meant that St. Vincent belonged to them, period. Sir William Young was dismayed that the most fertile regions of the island were inhabited by an erratic nation of savage warriors and hunters. During the first few years after the 1763 peace, British colonists and investors in St. Vincent tried to force a variety of treaties with the Caribs that would cede their land to the British. Yet the few chiefs who listened with deep attention to British offers of the full rights of British subjects for Caribs and their free black allies found themselves disavowed by their own people. As such, British colonial officials went to great pains to impress Carib leaders into accepting British sovereignty. But despite Young's assertion that treaties with the Caribs were in all cases just and even favorable to the Caribs, Caribs continued to assert their sovereignty against all interference within the country they called their own, and by disclaiming allegiance to the crown. By 1768, it became clear to the British that the policy they were pursuing was unsatisfactory. So on March 25th, the colony's board of commissioners related new instructions in regards to the issue of buying Carib land. The commissioners declared henceforth, no step shall be taken towards the removal of any Carib till the whole arrangement and design shall have been notified and explained to the satisfaction of their chiefs. Once a treaty was signed, the Caribs were to have five years to remove after selling their land. On June 5th, British colonial officials sent the Abbe Valdares to attempt to gain a Carib approval, but upon his arrival at Grand Sable, the richest and principal settlement of the Caribs, he found the head chief Chatelier unwilling to negotiate with any European except the governor of Martinique and no other. When the board of commissioners next met on, the, on June 14th, they were joined by Chatelier, who brought a host of 40 Caribs who asserted their sovereignty to the British again. The Carib diplomatic strategy worked, and the British were forced to defer the plan of entering their country. The Caribs thwarted the designs of St. Vincent Board of Commissioners by vigorously asserting their sovereignty. Now, undaunted by the diplomatic confrontation with Carib sovereignty, British colonial officials deemed it necessary to go beyond the instructions of the commissioner's earlier report, and in an attempt to force the Caribs to recognize British rule on the island, uh, the British officials on St. Vincent planned the construction of a road that would transect the Caribs' territory. In the opinion of Sir William Young, among civilized nations, no, such right to build a road might be deemed a fair result of sovereignty. The Caribs, for their part, recognized that if the road were completed, 
British colonials would have the power to bring troops and cannon amongst them, and as a result, they would no longer be able to defer unconditional submission. On November 28, 1768, the Caribs stopped the surveyors and their pioneers at the River Jambo and forbade them from advancing further. By December 8th, the surveyors admitted they could not proceed without military assistance. In spring of 1769, they received it, and the construction crew continued, along with a military escort, to prevent long marches to and from the project. A house of the Mariscal River was appropriated as a barracks on the 1st of May, 1769. The next morning, at dawn, British sentries left the gardens and relieved themselves. The house was on a hill, and that morning he found that 300 Caribs, well armed, had surrounded the house, forcing commander of the British colonizing project to promise that the roads would proceed no further. The Caribs forced the British soldiers into the makeshift barracks, keeping it surrounded and cutting off every possible communication. The Carib chiefs subsequently told the British authorities on St. Vincent that they would only release the prisoners if the British gave up immediately all pretensions to interfere within their country. The British agreed. And though the agreement that resulted from this incident, and excuse me, through the agreement that resulted from this incident, understood that they could take no step beyond the old boundaries of the Carib country. This incident proved to Carib leadership that the British would only respect indigenous sovereignty of the island by demonstrations of force. British newspapers conveyed the news of the Caribs' defense of their sovereignty and homeland. In response to the road-building incident in the spring of 1769, newspapers published an extract of a letter from St. Vincent. That's exactly what the New York Journal did on August 31st. The letter noted the Caribs had assembled themselves in arms and expressed great uneasiness and dissatisfaction and forced the British army to back down. Shortly afterwards, another spectacular encounter made the British proud, this time on the high seas. On August 24, 1769, a lightly manned British sloop encountered four Carib paragues, and I apologize if I've gotten that uh, wrong, but a parague is a very large seafaring canoe, by the way. Uh, anyway, these paragues were carrying 80 men on a return trade According to William Young, the ship's commander, named Quinlan, was certain the Caribs were carrying gunpowder and suspected them of hostile intentions. Captain Quinlan's orders were to use his warship to stop Carib canoes at sea. The Caribs ignored Quinlan's demand that the canoes approach one at a time and instead advance. In response, the British fired a warning shot, shot to one of the ship's cannon. The Caribs returned fire, sending a volley with their flintlocks of lead onto the ship, killing two sailors and wounding another. The British warship continued to fire back, sinking the Paragues one after another, 
The British sailors then witnessed a powerful scene of bravery as the Caribs continued swimming on with their cutlasses in their mouths and attempting to scale the ship. Despite the military advantage, Quinlan was forced to retreat. He now had only six healthy sailors under his command and quickly set sail. This incident was a major blow to the Caribs. Their survivors almost certainly drowned, although I don't know. Young notes that the settlers in St. Vincent now felt the most serious alarm, sentiments that were echoed in British newspapers. This one made the new this story was told in the New York Gazette on September 9th. Eighteenth century contemporary art likewise shows how episodes of Carib resistance in the seventeen sixties transformed British views on the indigenous population of St. Vincent. The painter Agostino Brunias traveled with William Young to St. Vincent, and Young owned several of Brunias's works. In 1770, Brunias completed Chateauier, the chief of the Black Caribs, in St. Vincent with his five wives. Now, uh, if you go to the History of the Atlantic World uh, Facebook page, you can see that. We've uh, put that up on our post, by the way. Um, while in part, the painting depicts typical British views of the Caribs. Brunias also ceded to Chateauier some qualities that are usually associated with important European men. Uh, similar to many indigenous societies, Carib men hunted and fished, while women performed agricultural tasks. Now, in much of Europe, fishing and hunting, and especially hunting, mind you, were seen as leisure activities. And so Carib division of labor was pretty foreign, and 18th century Europeans didn't really fully understand it, I don't think. Um, and so Brunias depicts Chateauier just leisurely smoking tobacco, a bemused expression on his face as he watches his five wives labor. Simultaneously, however, Chateauier holds a sword uh, by the hilt in his right hand and a dagger still in his belt, hanging within easy reach. And further, although Chateauier's facial expression may seem to put him at ease, he stands with one leg slightly flexed and extended forward. Now, he's not on a horse, but nonetheless, Chateauier thus evokes the image of a man of action. Uh, and you'll see that, that a lot. Um, anytime you look at a, a lot of these old um, European paintings, I'd say from, oh gosh, 15th, 16th century, at least through the 19th century, um, say you look at Napoleon, George Washington, any of these, these famous guys like this, um, you will almost always see them either with one leg up in the air or on a horse. Uh, they usually look like they're about to do something, or they're in the act of doing something. These are men of action, important men. Uh, Brunias has, has, has painted Chateauier. Now, the British uh, may not have recognized Carib claim to St. Vincent, but in the aftermath of the 1760s, they had began to realize that the Caribs were a capable and dangerous foe, not young. Now, the rivalry between Britain and France uh, was worked to the advantage of the Black Caribs, um, who played off of French fears of British domination of the region in order to obtain guns, powder, and other manufactured goods that were long a part of indigenous societies by the mid-18th century. 
Now, even after the Treaty of Paris made trade with French merchants more difficult, the Caribs procured European supplies from other French Caribbean islands. Sir William Young was deeply suspicious of the two nations of Caribs on St. Vincent obtaining French support. And that's not to say that the Treaty of Paris did not change the relationship between Britain and the Caribs. On the contrary, weakened French power in the Atlantic meant that British warships could pursue a strategy of cutting off the Caribs uh, from French merchants on Dominica. And in the aftermath of the road-building incident, the British pursued a strategy that amounted to an 18th century of economic sanctions that would one day enable the British to cut the Caribs off from their suppliers and eventually starving them into submission. Now, the Black Caribs, for their part, were engaging the British as basically as rational economic actors. According to Sir William Young, the nature of plantation monoculture in the Caribbean meant that the Black Caribs were able to use colonial law in St. Vincent against itself. It claimed that the Caribs hid murderers or runaways who had fled from justice, revenge, or slavery in their territory. William Young noted how difficult it was to gain possession of Carib lands since they were claimed by families or tribes of Caribs in common, and the sale made by one would be disavowed by every other. The Caribs were also capable of waging economic warfare against the British. Runaways sought freedom on the north end of St. Vincent, but life for these refugees could sometimes be almost as precarious as it was in bondage, forced on to their own survival. The Caribs had little compunction about using runaway slave populations as buffers between them and British aggressors. The Black Caribs took advantage of the value that Europeans placed on slave labor for sugar plantations. Young complained that Caribs seized and sold slaves from St. Vincent planters to neighboring French on. The Black Caribs were robust in realizing a variety of economic motives that reverberated through the economic world in print and art, and which immediately compelled British society to recalculate their attitudes toward Africans. On December the 15th, 1770, Sir William Young signed a report that noted a British surrender to all purchases of Carib lands. When the British went to Chateauier and 40 other chiefs to relay the terms of the treaty, that canceled previous illicit purchases of Carib lands, Chateauier berated the commissioners from a position of power. According to Young, the Caribs declared repeatedly, and in the most unqualified terms, that they were resolved that in no time whatsoever any European should settle within the country they claimed. And they absolutely denied any right in the crown of Great Britain to their allegiance. They said they knew of no king, and they would acknowledge no king. These powerful assertions of Carib agency began to exert considerable influence over the larger Atlantic, although this was not enough to halt the avarice of West Indies planters. In the summer of 1772, Young and other commissioners of St. Vincent mobilized British soldiers against the Caribs to again attempt to build a road to the Carib country under protection of sufficient military force. The Caribs, though, either learned of this plan in advance, or, perhaps, they had simply learned to not trust the British. And as a result, British ships approaching the shore were repeatedly fired on, and any landing was prevented. The conflict landed, land, lasted five months, ending in the British... only ending after the British succeeded in constructing 
several military posts inside of Carib territory. This forced the Caribs to demand a parley and negotiate. And the British victory meant that a treaty uh, in, signed in, in, on February 17, 1773, was harsh for the Caribs. They were forced to give up lands and were forced to cede the right of the British to finally build roads, ports, batteries, and communications on the north end of the island. The British also required that the Caribs return all runaways, and requiring forfeiture of lands for harboring and carrying off the island to Capital Prime. In 1773, this British victory gave them great advantage in dealing with the Caribs, but the victory was by no means complete. William Young complained that subsequent to the treaty and continuing the road through the Carib country, the British were occasionally menaced and at times impeded in their progress. As a result, the British roads were perfected only to certain stations and not generally brought to intersect the country as first intended. Except for incidents surrounding road construction, the Caribs and the British dealt with each other rather favorably for the next five years. To Young, such habits of dealing with the Caribs induced a sense of mutual advantage. Now, Young did ignore the fact that Carib interests impelled them to deal peaceably with British subjects on St. Vincent uh, in the wake of their defeat, when he wrote that the Caribs were become domesticated with the English and finally attached to them as fellow subjects. Um, but in a way, Young is correct. The response to harsh British terms in the treaty, the Caribs reacted uh, by acclimating themselves to British society on St. Vincent. Young's bias precluded his ability to comprehend that the British, though, were also being domesticated and attached to the Caribs as well. Now, the Caribs did begin to realize that they were too few in number to just eject the British from St. Vincent but they continued to view the British as invaders of their homeland. Carib ambitions for regaining control uh, changed, though, when France joined the rebellious North American colonies' war against Britain. Valentine Morris was the governor uh, of, well, excuse me, I guess he had the honor of being made the king's lieutenant governor in 1772. He served uh, as, as governor, uh, which spanned the American Revolution, um, at a time when Morris grew increasingly concerned with the accumulated disadvantages he served, suffered from as governor from the numerous tribes of Carib Indians who occupy a tract of wood, mountain, and seacoast. The Caribs continued to use the British-French rivalry to their own advantage. Morris noted that the Caribs were given weapons by smugglers and French settlers. Morris likewise makes clear that the 1773 treaty had less of an effect on the Caribs than planters like William Young would have liked. According to Morris, large bands of runaway Negroes were often protected by the Caribs, and I blame these runaways for frequent and hostile incursions into the settled country. In response, Morris established barracks, hospitals, and ammunition storehouses that were necessary to carry on the Carib War. Morris also continued the work on the chain of forts and posts that St. Vincent commissioners recommended to defend against secret depredations or open attacks of the Caribs and runaways. Morris's conceptions of colonial life were transformed at this time of governor. To his surprise, St. Vincent 
as a turbulent colony, little disposed to conduct itself with order and regularity. Valentine provides valuable insight into the ways in which the black Caribs exerted influence during the 1770s. In correspondence from Valentine to Lord George Germain, the Secretary of State for the American Department, dated June 27, 1776, Valentine makes the recommendation that a considerable body of troops should be resident in the island because of its unsettled state and the large number of Caribs, who were increasingly angry with the British because of the lands they were recently obliged to cede to the crown. Morris was adamant that no opportunity should be lost maintaining a due control over the turbulent spirit of licentious independence that existed on the island. Like William Young, Morris was of the opinion that the importance of building a road of communication from one side of the island to the other was paramount to the British goal of obtaining military supremacy over the Caribs. Morris shows that the, the, the Caribs negotiated and engaged in diplomacy with the British rather artfully between the years of 1773 and 1780 as an effective means of resistance, and in fact showed that Europeans were not the only actors in the Caribbean who were capable of breaking treaties. The Black Caribs still saw themselves as a sovereign people after the concessions demanded upon them by the Treaty of 1773, and so they ignored them. Indigenous influence increased considerably on St. Vincent when Carib and French interests, interests intersected during the American Revolution. The Caribs apparently ignored the stimulation in the 1773 treaty concerning the return of runaway slaves. The French supplied the Caribs with guns and powder for very low prices to ensure a strong alliance, and as a result, the relationship between Caribs and runaways changed. In a letter from 1777, Valentine Morris wrote that runaway Negroes were particularly aided and armed by the Caribs, and as a result, the runaways operated with increasing force and boldness. Later that month, an attack was planned on the runaways, and in May, Valentine noted that the completion of a hazardous but successful ex expedition of three weeks against the runaway Negroes. Yet by the end of spring, Valentine also noted that a considerable number of Caribs were gone to Martinique for arms and ammunition to help resupply the runaways. According to Morris, this forced the British military to engage in a second, very laborious expedition against the runaways. This was also successful. Yet the Caribs continued to travel to Martinique, and in spite of every precaution. Now, much of Governor Morris's concern stemmed from French naval power interrupting the British blockade of indigenous seagoing vessels. Morris even noted that privateering Americans have been tampering with the Caribs. European imperial powers inspired by competition with Britain, back Carib economic independence, which in turn greatly increased the chances of Carib returning to St. Vincent with of Caribs returning to St. Vincent with renewed ammunitions and supplies. In return, this process amplified the influence that Carib sovereignty had on British racial constructions. With allies, the relationship between colonists and indigenes on St. Vincent reversed. Morris was not successful by 1779 in subduing the Caribs, and in that year, on March 17th, he sent a letter urging additional military support to complete the road of communication from the windward to leeward side of the island. Chateauier and the Caribs, meanwhile, 
planned a joint attack with the French in June. On that fateful let's do it with the accent. On that fateful day, more so late, about five hundred French soldiers landed off St. Vincent and were joined by the Carrots, and the island was taken by France. According to Morris, the British were significantly outmatched in the battle. He bemoaned that, including their allies, the Caribs, the enemy outnumbered Morris's forces by 15 to 1, and thus was compelled to treat and capitulate. As a result of British surrender, the Caribs engaged in the restoration of the homeland. Valentine states that the Caribgeists were concerned to reclaim land which they felt had been taken from them by nefarious means by the English, since they only meant to lease a few acres, not to sell. And in the new social order on St. Vincent, British settlers were at the mercy of the Caribs. Morris was grateful that even though he was made prisoner, the capitulation was still good for the English who were allowed to remain on the island. News of the victory reverberated throughout the Atlantic. Many British subjects were shocked and uncertain by the defeat, but others rejoiced. Rebellious Bostonians, who read Providence Gazette and Country Journal on July 22, 1779, discovered that, quote, the island of St. Vincent was taken by our allies without any resistance made by the enemy. In the colonies that would later comprise the United States, rebellious British subjects conceptualized the black Arabs not as escaped slaves posing as Native Americans, but as a people fighting for, and perhaps even worthy, freedom. British conceptions of the Caribs were altered significantly as well. By as a result of the war, Valentine Morris, defeated at the hands of the Black Caribs, well, for him, that was especially life-changing. His attempts to control the Caribs made him fearful and paranoid during the war, bitter and broken afterwards. In September of 1777, he asked some of the chiefs to go out with their clans to try to take the runaway Negroes. He states that the Caribs insisted on doing this quite by themselves and then failed at their task, saying they could meet no runaways. The incident left Morris certain that they gave intelligence to the others of all they knew of my intentions. By December of that year, Morris wrote that British colonists were hourly liable to the plunder of privateers and any disturbances from the Caribs and runaway Negroes, concluding that nothing could save the British but a rapid settlement, clearing of the woods, and numerous white population. The British, however, could spare Morris no aid, and his plea for help in case the Caribs attempt to rise should any foreign attack be made went unanswered. As a result, Morris's fear of attacks by French, Carib, and runaway slaves led him to place the island under martial law on August 26th of 1778. A month later, in September, Morris received word that the French were planning to attack. He also received intelligence indicating that the Caribs, recently resupplied with French guns and ammunition, were assembling in large bodies, making in their woods redoubts and breastworks. But Morris was out of time. By September, the attack was committed. On the 27th, Morris related that the Caribs continued to bolster the size of their force by endeavoring to persuade some Negroes to quit their masters and to join them. Morris admitted that his decision to surrender was based out of fear that the Caribs would sack, burn, and otherwise destroy all the unarmed plantations, which compelled him in duty to capitulate. Morris noted that because of this attack, he was forced to accept Carib sovereignty, which before the capitulation 
he would never have listened to. After the French and Kareb victory, Morris worked to repair his position. He reported that the French next planned to attack Granada, which Morris thought would give the British governor the happy opportunity of displaying his well-known abilities, because unlike St. Vincent, Granada was free from eternal enemies or Caribs. The fortune of the Caribs' ability to protect their lands reversed when the British regained control of St. Vincent, however, in 1783 at the Treaty of Versailles. But Morris was recalled in England and lived his remaining years in disgrace. However, the incredible impact that the Black Caribs have on the larger Atlantic world means that Morris's battered reputation can be assuaged by his historical significance. If nothing else, Valentine Morris endures as an outlier, an example that 17 years of British experience with colonial administration on St. Vincent produced a prodigious range of reactions from British subjects. Now, as for the British planters on St. Vincent back in power after Versailles, they were again confronted with Carib sovereignty in 1783, as British attitudes toward the Caribs continued to change. Chateauier treated the British with respect after defeat and allowed them to stay on the island in 79, so changing attitudes among the British regarding Carib sovereignty contributed to Sir William Young's regret that the British treated the Caribs with a benevolent intention and with bounties. Although in power, the British ceded land to give plantations to politically powerful Carib chiefs, the wealthy planter and parliament member Young stated that Chateauier was especially comparatively rich, having been assisted by loans of sureties by English gentlemen, from whom the chief received his, the most flattering attentions and hospitality. The image of Chateauier and other Caribs as proper English landholders did not dis dissuade the still powerful West Indies plantation faction, headed by William Young, from pursuing the remainder of St. Vincent. Nor did Carib political elites' usage of British cultural practices mean that the Caribs had forgiven previous British insults to their sovereignty. The Caribs remained close with France, considering them allies, and the restoration of hostilities between the two powers at the onset of the French Revolution meant that peace between the Caribs and British settlers was short. Now, unfortunately for the Carib nationalists on St. Vincent, the British Navy had a much firmer grip on the Empire's Caribbean holdings, and the long-term British strategy of engaging a naval blockade of St. Vincent was much more successful during 1790. Hostilities began to rise by 1793, and by mid-decade, British authorities were increasingly concerned that the Caribs would attack. And in March of 1795, they declared martial law. The Caribs did attack that same month, and according to William Young, this was a result of their innate barbarity. The British botanist Alexander Anderson, the British botanist Alexander Anderson traveled to St. Vincent um, in the 1790s, and he offered more compelling reasons for the British attack on the Caribs. Critical of British planters, Anderson accused them of routinely driving off Caribs from land they desired sometimes done imprudently by burning their houses. Anderson's critical view of St. Vincent planters brings to light the desperate circumstances the Caribs were under. The effects of encroachment from British planters and the Caribs were compounded by the naval blockade. Anderson relates that the Caribs were entirely cut off from the sea. Carib resistors, led by Chateauier, and suffering from the 
effects of long-term starvation, made a desperate attack against the British in March of 1795. But at the conclusion of this attack, Chateauier was dead, killed in a duel with a British soldier, and the Carib resistance, the British imperialism, was shattered. With no other choice, the Caribs signed a final treaty with the British that gave them authority to remove Caribs to a reservation on a small island of Roatan, off the coast off the east coast of Honduras. Anderson's notes that they sailed for their destination on April 5th, 1797. Now, although the Black Caribs of St. Vincent were ultimately defeated, years of resisting British imperialism by the application of sovereign power forced Europeans to critically investigate their existing conceptualizations of race and indigeneity. In 1700, Governor-General of the French Antilles, uh, the Governor-General of the French Antilles, planned to carry off these Negroes and sell them in the French colony, or send, or send them to be sold by the Spanish. Throughout the 18th century, the Black Caribs asserted their sovereignty culturally, diplomatically, economically, and militarily. This infuriated a lot of British and French planters, um, and, but it also transformed uh, for many Europeans their conceptualizations of race. So the, by the beginning of the 19th century, many Europeans understood the Black Caribs to be indigenous and therefore not chattel. Thus on St. Vincent, the individual status, whether enslaved or free, was not solely a matter of skin color. Now, Carib sovereignty was endearing to some British observers. Alexander Anderson's warm sentiments for the Black Caribs were shared by the Methodist missionary Thomas Coke, who visited St. Vincent in 1788. Coke discovered that some of the Carib people were highly refined for a savage race. Despite their warlike appearance, Coke found them a more handsome people than the enslaved Africans and was much attached to these poor savages, admitting that cruelties between Brits and Caribs originated probably with ourselves rather than with them. So too did the anonymous author of The Generous Carib, an article published in January 1800 in Boston, which reminded uh, the readers that domestic tenderness and universal philanthropy may be the growth of every clime. This reformed viewpoint was still highly ethnocentric as a result of centuries of conquest stretching back into the medieval and late classical eras. Western culture in the 17th, in the 17th and 18th centuries was completely interwoven with imperial ideology. When the Enlightenment-leaning British minds like Coke visited St. Vincent, they still saw supposed deficiencies in the Caribs and the desperate need for Christianity and English culture, no matter their admiration for them. And in consequence, the St. Vincent planters, led by Sir William Young, cloaked their piggish indulgence for Carib land with religion. Thus, British imperial ventures onto St. Vincent were met with little resistance from British contemporaries more concerned with humanity or saving souls than accumulating capital. British planters on St. Vincent were unable to fully suppress humanitarian impulses by other British subjects. William Young admitted that the Caribs were regarded by some persons in Great Britain as an independent nation, and were thus unable to completely reduce the changes in the British mindset brought about as a result of Caribs' declarations of sovereignty. Therefore, the eventual defeat of the Caribs on St. Vincent says, I think, less about the impact of Carib agency than it does about the considerable power of the planter faction of the 
British government during the 17th and 18th centuries. The Caribs were unable to preserve their homeland, but they were nonetheless essential to, I think, the eventual creation of the United States. Vigorous application of Carib sovereignty in St. Vincent and the subsequent newspaper coverage it received played an important role in the American Revolution. Colonial North American newspapers began printing stories about Carib resistance to the British in St. Vincent during the 1760s. British subjects in St. Vincent, excuse me, in North America, considering an attempt at freedom from the British, themselves were inundated with tales of bravery by Caribs throwing off the yoke of British oppression on land and on sea. For future revolutionaries in British North America, incidents on St. Vincent, such as the Carib success in preventing the road from cutting through their territory, served as clear-cut examples that British power in the Americas was not absolute. As such, political expedience alone cannot explain what prompted American newspapers to call the Caribs allies in 1779. At least in part, positive American reception to Carib goals on St. Vincent was the result of the influence that Carib sovereignty had on the Atlantic world. The Caribs did not prevent St. Vincent's planters from eventually displacing them, but even wealthy imperialists like William Young found their conceptions of race challenged as a result of Carib resistance. Young admitted in 1791 in a Parliament speech that he was most averse to a traffic in men. Though Young was not opposed to the immediate abolishment of the trade, in his speech he claimed to want Great Britain to abandon her share of the trade. By the end of the 18th century, the planters Young represented in Parliament were beginning to abandon moral arguments for the slave trade in favor of fears of economic uncertainty. Young's sentiments for eventual abolition were sincere, even though, judging by the standards of the day, Young was no humanitarian. Instead, Carib sovereignty forced Young and other St. Vincent planters to reconsider the economic practicality of continuing the slave trade. Experiences dealing with the Caribs of St. Vincent made Young understand that a natural increase of Negroes in the West Indian Islands was possible. Young argued against abolition because planters were deeply in debt. West Indies planters faced economic hardship for a variety of reasons, but in Young's case, it stemmed from the economic drain caused by the Carib War. Though all West Indies planters faced debt, St. Vincent investors and planters like Young also had to deal with numerous extra expenses that resulted from Carib resistance to British colonialism. Now, the stamp of Carib influence on the Atlantic is thus most obvious in examining their impact on chattel slavery in the Atlantic. According to Alexander Anderson, the poor slaves of St. Vincent were made more rebellious in knowing the Caribs to be of the same extraction as themselves, yet being free and enjoying more liberty than the lower class of white men. The black Caribs sometimes sold oppressed runaways into the military service, and as William Young noted, some Carib chiefs had slaves and even plantations of their own. But despite the assertions of planters like Young, who believed that no slavery is equally wretched with that of the Carib women, escape to the Carib-held north end of the island represented a far better opportunity for freedom than for British-owned slaves. Brits on St. Vincent, confronted with slave-owning Carib chiefs, were undoubtedly forced to reconsider whether the factors that resulted in enslavement 
were the result of imbalances in political power between peoples, and not as a result of divine order. Many enslaved Africans, undeterred by a certain uncertain future in the north end of the island, chose to run away. Those who succeeded forced upon British observance an example of enslaved Africans who, despite the supposed benefits of European culture and religion, preferred to be free. Black Caribs engaged with British slaves in a variety of ways, but whether the Caribs freed or re-enslaved runaways, the result for British colonists on St. Vincent was additional exposure to Carib sovereign power that challenged British notions about race. And you can really see this um, with an 18th century British morality tale uh, called Inkle and Yarico. It's a once famous tale of slavery and miscegenation, which from 1711 to 1810 was translated into at least 10 European languages. It first appeared in Richard Steele's version um, of The Spectator on March 13, 1711. The story was incontestably the century's most influential and widely read series of moral prose essays in English. Various versions of the tale note Jericho as an Indian or African woman who fell in love with Inkle, an English trader. Yariko saves Inkle and the two fall in love. Later, when Inkle's fortune turns bad, he sells Yariko into slavery. In 1833, Matthew James Chapman included the tale in Barbados and other poems. Chapman penned, Hunted from every spot he calls his own, the cherub perished and his race is gone. According to uh, one scholar, the poet's inclusion here of the story of Yeriko is primarily meant to exemplify the former cruelty of the slave trade. Carib resistance on the island functions, therefore, as a parallel contributing force to evolving European conceptions of race, as did the revolts of the Jama Jamaican Maroons or the Haitian Revolution. Now, that black Carib sovereignty would influence European morality regarding slavery seems common sense. Carib sovereignty likewise played a role in British economic concerns with the trade. Now, historian Seymour Drescher provides compelling evidence that British abolition was largely the result of changing British views on the economic value of free versus slave labor. And as William Young notes in 1791, the success of the Carib nation gave British observers of St. Vincent the opportunity to see firsthand African populations were capable of natural increase in the Caribbean. Young's opinion was reflected in 1807 in a Parliament speech given by Lord Hardwick, who grouped the Caribs, despite all their disadvantages, along with the Jamaican Maroons and the North American slave population, as examples of natural increase. Now, the study of late 18th century St. Vincent shows that indigenous culture played a larger and more dynamic role in the chrysalis of the Atlantic world than most scholars have allowed. Anthropologist Stephen Palmy wrote, quote, Ever since Las Casas' report about the devastation of the Indies, stereotypes of the overpowering onslaught of the higher civilization upon helpless natives have shaped views of a historical constellation between European perpetrators and primitive victims overseas. At least up to the point of anti-colonial movements, the role of these people as historical subjects is commonly perceived as incidental." Unquote. Now, 
the ethnocentric qualities of British first-hand accounts of the islands generally tried to minimize the impact that the Caribs had on the wider world. And so later historians, operating in an era with the Caribs already removed, have further mitigated their influence. And so as a result, the contributions of the Black Caribs to the Atlantic world were forgotten over the course of the 19th century. And thus, historical research of the Caribbean, arguably more so than any other geographic zone in the Americas, has been a victim to the myth of the vanishing Indians. Subsequent scholars of the Atlantic have often mythologized the Caribbean to be less diverse than the continental Americas. In, in many otherwise excellent studies of Atlantic themes, the influence of Caribs and other indigenous groups fades away leaving Africans and Europeans alone to control the destiny of the Caribbean. But, as we've seen, study of the Black Caribs on St. Vincent exposes this omission, and it makes clear that scholarship of the Caribbean is a little too simplistic. Now, before I let you go, uh, I, I do want to say that the Caribs live on today in Honduras. They call themselves the Gorafana. Um, Honduras also notable for uh, a site of, of, of uh, a lot of Mayan habituation. So I think in the future it would be a great, great place um, to possibly take a little trip. Um, we'll have more of that next time with our last of our three-part series here that introduces the Atlantic world to everyone. Um, when we talk about uh, Savannah, Georgia the final of the 13 colonies. Anyway, until then, uh, thank you and uh, have a good day. Viva Chateauier! And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I was taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. This is a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship.